0: Time Magazine's Person of the Year, a victim of an assassin's bullet, and the only American other than Washington to be remembered through a US national holiday. Welcome to this episode of Stanford and the 20th Century, the series that looks at history through the life and work of major global figures with a connection to the university. I'm Daniel Ray, and in this episode we'll be exploring Martin Luther King. King made an important speech at Stanford in 1967 of which more later. To discuss King, I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Professor Claiborne Carson. Professor Carson is the founder and director of the King Institute at Stanford University and was selected by King's widow, Coretta Scott King, to edit King's papers. Clay, it's a great privilege to have you here today. Welcome to the programme. Good to be here, Daniel. Thank Thank you, Clay. I wonder if we could start by going back to the 28th of August, 1963, and an event that took place near the memorial to another American leader, Abraham Lincoln. 19 years old, you were there that day as Martin Luther King told the world about his dream. What are your most abiding memories of the day and of King's speech?
1: I I think it wasn't so much his speech because that came at the end of a long day. Mm. And by that time I was trying to uh, figure out a way home because I'd (laughs) I'd hitched a ride there. And trying to find that uh, same bus going back, I, I never did find it. But in any case, I think what really impressed me was just seeing all the people. Mm-hmm. I had never been to a demonstration before. I thought of all the demonstrations to start out with. You know, a know, Yeah, that's that's a pretty good one. And uh, so I, I I had never seen much, so many black people in, in my life because I'd grown up in New Mexico. So I saw more black people that day than I'd seen in all my life mm-hmm. growing up. And then just to just to see the scale of the event, mm. it was easy to get lost in it. And I had never been to Washington before, so um, I, I had no idea about my orientation. I was just kind of following the crowd, and they were marching in a certain direction. And I followed them. And when I got there, tried to get as close to the stage as possible. Were you swimming,
0: trying to navigate your way? No, yeah, you know,
1: since I was there by myself, yeah. I could I could just kind of go wherever my curiosity yeah. took me, and. You know, I wanted to see some of these people, famous people I'd Mm -hmm. heard about. And, you know, not just the political people, people like John Lewis, who was, you know, the head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee at the time, and and Martin Luther King, people like Joan Baez, and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and and Burt Lancaster, you know, just movie figures, uh, celebrities, and and, uh, all of that I just wanted to take in. I mean, if you had the experience of growing up in a small town I think one thing that anyone with my curiosity in that you want to get out of that small town you want to mm-hmm. see the world and and uh, so I wanted to just take it in, in it all so I, so I think that was what really um, captured my imagination and of course I had heard about King I'd heard about what a great oratory was and and I think that was what kept people there mm. you know the fact that they put him at the end of the program. Yeah. No one wanted to follow him. The climax, yeah. You, uh, you couldn't follow King. So they put him at the end, and they knew that as soon as he's finished speaking, everybody would be rushing for the exit. So yeah. so it, it was it was several hours of trying to navigate back before I, I found a ride anywhere, and so, I ended up in New York rather than uh, going back to where I'd come from.
0: How did you get back if you missed the bus? So
1: I was wandering around, and, and I ran into this group. From Brooklyn I think it was and and they said uh, oh well we have some extra room on our bus and so I said sure you know, <laughs> uh, get to go to New York and and then I had to figure out how to get from there but that was for the next day to figure out so <laughs> I, I had a place I could get on the bus and, and get some sleep um, getting back to to New York and I think they let me out at Penn Station that from there I just exp- spent a day exploring New York
0: and as a student, you were a grassroots campaigner in, in the movement and the anti-war protests.
1: Well, that came later. Uh, I guess when I, once I'd seen the, the world outside of New Mexico, I, mm. I knew that I wasn't long for New Mexico. Uh, so uh, I went back and finished up a year at uh, University of New Mexico and, and then transferred to uh, UCLA. And uh, from there, I began more activism and uh, Actually, L.A. was kind of like a big version of the march because I was there partly for political reasons, partly for education, partly just to have fun, uh, experience a big city and and to uh, be on my own, not be uh, near my parents, (laughs) and uh, loved it. And I got involved in a group called the Nonviolent Action Committee, kind of a militant group that broke off from the Congress of Racial Equality founded by three black guys who thought that these groups were too much about hmm. talking and not em- enough about doing yeah and uh you yeah, know they kind of had a had a rule that uh, the only discussion was not whether to use civil disobedience but when and where okay.
0: and how does your involvement in grassroots movements affect the way you view dr king
1: I think from the very beginning, I saw him the way they saw Martin Luther King. Many of them had participated in the movement, but they, they were much closely, more closely associated with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Mm-hmm. The, I guess the first person I met in SNCC was Stokely Carmichael, who was a student like myself, um, already very active. He was at Howard University, so he could be right in, in the center of things. And he became kind of a role model for me. And later on that year, I met Bob Moses, who was the organizer of their Mississippi campaign. And, uh, you know, I'd never seen black guys like that, you know, where they were outspoken, militant. And they thought they admired King, but they thought that King was following them, Hmm. you know, that they were the vanguard, uh, that King was too cautious and too willing to compromise and, and particularly the group I met in Los Angeles, they were convinced that the center of the movement had to expand from the south into the urban north and that these were the problems that were much more intractable. And I think in, in some respects, they were the vanguard. A king came to view the urban north as the next focus of the movement. And he came out to uh, Los Angeles in, in 1965 when I was there in response to what we call the rebellion hmm. in South Central Los Angeles. And then we were kind of in the middle of that. I mean, NVAC's headquarters was, was on Central Avenue in South Central Los Angeles. And and I remember being there on, I guess, the first Friday of, of the rebellion and just being so amazed that the black residents had taken over the streets. Hmm. I mean, the police did not want to come in there. Now, I could also see that some people were burning down buildings, and um, actually, we had some concern that our headquarters would be burned down just accidentally because okay. uh, these fires were getting out of control. But I could, I could see immediately that the movement had changed dramatically overnight. It was not only clear that the urban north was going to be the focus, but it was going to be much more difficult to achieve this kind of systematic change mm-hmm. in outside the south. Yeah. Than it was to overcome the Jim Crow system in the South.
0: You've spoken a little bit there about how these other figures viewed King, him as being behind them. How did King view these people who perceived themselves as the vanguard?
1: I think King kind of had a certain sympathy for the young younger people because he wasn't that old himself. Mm. I mean, he was only in his uh, in his early thirties. He was pretty young. But the distinction between a 33 year old or a 34 year old and
0: someone who was still in college yeah it's a big was that that was a big difference there yeah. and how is it then with all of these disparate groups and big personalities how is it that king becomes the most visible figure in the movie
1: well he had already become the most visible figure with and, Rosa Parks or- yeah I mean after Rosa Parks uh and in part because of the March on Washington, after that he's man of the year and mm-hmm. he gets the Nobel Peace Prize and all 64. of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So he was already the most visible figure. It was just that there was this assumption that he was the leader and everyone else was kind of following behind him. And that perspective kind of leaves out the fact that there were people going ahead of him, yeah, going in, in ways that he was reluctant to move. Mm. I mean, just really getting involved in the urban north. We, you know, NVAC had been doing that for at least three years before his Chicago mm-hmm. campaign, getting involved in issues like the war in Vietnam. The anti war movement was pretty well developed by the spring of 67 when Martin Luther King took his stand against the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so many of us had reasons to believe that we were kind of leading the way for him. We were breaking new ground and now, since that that time, I've I've learned that King was always concerned about broader range of issues beyond civil rights. Mm-hmm. That now that I can study his papers, I can see that as a college student, uh, as a divinity student, he's talking about dealing with unemployment, slums, economic insecurity, mm-hmm. you know, issues like that. What he called the social gospel. So he was certainly concerned about that. But what I've seen from looking at him is that. Rosa Parks turns him into a civil rights leader, mm-hmm. that he comes to Montgomery and he's concerned about these issues like a lot of social gospel ministers. But if he had gone to um, Mobile, Alabama, mm-hmm. or someplace else for his first church, we probably wouldn't be talking about Martin Luther King today. We would be talking about him as an activist minister, but yeah. th- there's a lot of those. I mean, Someone like Cecil Williams in San Francisco, you know, at Glide Memorial Church where you deal with the problems of the poor and you try to deal with these social issues that's that's the kind of minister he yeah. would have become anyway
0: yeah and what was it about the milieu of the Rosa Parks protest that was different from the Claudette Colvin one I think nine months earlier that meant that it just was just so much more influential
1: well you know that she just had so much more um was so well regarded and mm-hmm. the local civil rights community. She had connections. Edie uh, Nixon, who was the NAACP leader, you know, had worked with her for a dozen you know, at least a dozen years before that. Mm-hmm. She knew other people involved in, in the civil rights struggle. She had been to Highlander Folk School in Tennessee to it was kind of a labor organizing school. So, you know, it's not like she suddenly <laughs> woke up and decided, oh, no, I'm not going to give up my seat today. Uh, You know, she was an experienced activist. And unlike Claudette Colvin before her, who was a teenager, just kind of doing it on the spur of the moment, for Rosa Parks, this was really the culmination of Mm -hmm. a career as, as an activist. So when she is arrested, she has connections that allow the entire community to be mobilized. Around her as a symbol.
0: What role does the media have in her rise, and in that of Dr. King?
1: Um, a lot, but you know, initially, what draws the media is that here you have a black community united in protest. And even today, you know, it, it is kind of amazing that you could have a black community organizing a bus boycott that is almost a hundred percent successful. Mm-hmm. That every black writer stays off the bus for over a year. It was the sustained nature. At first doesn't even get in the newspapers outside of Montgomery. But when this goes on for the second week and the third week, and Martin Luther King is selected to lead it, and he starts giving you know these wonderful speeches and you know, so that gradually draws the mm-hmm. press in. And you begin to see the emergence of oh my gosh, You know there, there is a movement. It's not just a few individuals. This is a grassroots movement.
0: And did King have something that might be called a media strategy or a public relations strategy? I think his, his strategy was pretty
1: simple, sustain the boycott, and, and he had a lot of help in doing that. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to do it himself. I think what he supplied to the boycott is his oratory one of the things that king did throughout his life was to link particular issues right to sit wherever you want to on a bus that's in some ways a very limited issue but when you look at his first speech that first night of the boycott and when he says you know when the history books of the future they will have to say they lived a great people who had the courage to stand up for their rights i mean i could i could imagine people in the audience just saying <laughs> writing in the front of the bus. I mean, you know that has to do with the, the Constitution and the uh, Declaration of Independence and you know all these you know transcendent issues. But what that does, though, is allow somebody to, on the hundredth day of the boycott, mm-hmm. to say, "No, I'm not just trying to get a seat on the front of the bus. I am trying to mm-hmm. achieve." what they express in the Declaration of Independence, you know, that all men are created equal. So King can link that limited goal yeah. to something that is worth fighting for, something that is worth, you know, I would imagine that when the rain started coming and they were saying like, you know, am I going to walk to my, <laughs> my work through this rain? And you go to these weekly mass meetings and he reminds you, no, it's not just sitting in the front of the bus. Yeah. This is a symbol for something, something much larger. And that's what he did throughout his career.
0: And what does King learn from the Montgomery campaign that he then tries to take forward in Birmingham and then in Selma?
1: Well, one way of looking at it is he doesn't learn very much because <laughs> uh, he's not very successful for in terms of sustaining the momentum from Montgomery. There's a period from the end of the Montgomery bus boycott at the end of 1956 to Birmingham, where King doesn't initiate very much of anything that has staying power. Yeah, He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to figure out how to set forth a movement. And to some degree, he's this accidental leader because he faces the problem that leaders throughout time, leaders today, you know, how do you mobilize people? to deal with the human rights issues of today. Well, it's difficult. It's difficult for anybody, even a great orator. But I think that what he found is that he came at the right time, that by 1963, there had been a mass struggle, which he had very little to do with creating. A lot of it comes from the sit-ins led by young kids my age at that time, the Freedom Rides the voting rights campaigns that are going on in in the Black Belt of Mississippi, you know, all that culminates in the March on Washington in 63. and, And Birmingham, where King doesn't succeed initially. He goes to jail and comes out and, you know, nothing's changed. But at that point, the kids get involved in the struggle and go out into the streets, thousands of them. And they create a situation that the police cannot contain. And that's what causes the victory in Birmingham. So King is in a sense the the beneficiary of something that he can't control. He could not start if he wanted to. Yeah, yeah so we have this kind of misleading idea about about King that you know that somehow he was this great man who could kind of magically go to the March on Washington in August of 1963 and talk about, I have a dream, and a year later we have a Civil Rights Act. (laughs) Or he could go to Selma, Alabama and march, lead a march to Montgomery, and four or five months later we have a Voting Rights Act. So you get kind of this this notion, oh, my gosh, he must have been a really (laughs) good orator to have made these things happen. But you forget that the forces that made them happen were beyond his control. That what happened in Birmingham came out of a history that happened in Birmingham. Yeah. The King was not a resident of Birmingham. It was Fred Shuttlesworth starting a, a movement back in the 1950s and, and mobilizing young people uh, in Birmingham to participate. In Selma, similarly, you know, the. The Boynton family, Amelia Boynton, was, you know, involved in voting rights struggles back in the '40s and '50s, and launches a voting rights campaign. And King comes in to assist it in early 1965, just as it is reaching the point where, you know, there's a lot of outside support coming in um, from many people, um, young people who. Launch voting rights efforts Mm -hmm. in various parts of Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi, so all of that energy gets culminates in this Selma to Montgomery march, which is then the stimulus for the Voting Rights Act. So King, in in some ways, is a very fortunate leader. And when he goes to Chicago, though, you know there isn't that. It's not like they welcome him and say, you know, come in and save our movement. Mm -hmm. Um, He he gets a kind of a mixed reception. Then he's up against much more determined forces that want to keep things the way they are, including black leaders who don't want to see an outsider come in and supplant
0: them. Do you think that the internal divisions within the movement are something that the public appreciates?
1: I don't think the public or even a lot of historians care, you know, but you have to study this in terms of these kinds of grassroots realities and, uh, You know, when you compare that to now, I wonder sometimes whether young people who are concerned about today's social issues, Black Lives Matter, you know, maldistribution of wealth, you know, all of these kinds of concerns in the 21st century, I hope they don't romanticize the model of the great leader from Mm -hmm. the 1960s, because that was a movement that took many decades, a century from the Civil War, to reached that stage where change was almost inevitable because it was happening around the world. You know, that was a a period after World War II when the majority of humanity, for the first time, gains the right to be citizens of the place where they happen to live. That's a global trend, global phenomenon that also had its impact in the United States. But it comes after a century of trying. (laughs)
0: Thank you, Clay. Um, And we're recording this at Stanford University, where you've been professor for many years. King was invited to speak on campus in April 1967, when he was organizing the Poor People's Campaign. What can you tell us about that speech and about the Poor People's Campaign in general?
1: Well, one of the the things about that speech, which is kind of interesting, is I think probably much of the audience expected him to talk about Vietnam because he had just spoken out against the war in Vietnam, and a lot of students here at Stanford were very involved in the Vietnam issue. Um, David Harris, the former president of Student Body, had, had um, I think, just recently gone to jail, going or at least been sentenced mm-hmm. to, to prison uh, for uh, refusing uh, the draft. But when he came here, he wanted to talk about poverty. and. Uh, you know the audience was kind of subdued. You know, if you watch that uh, recording of the of the speech, you know, you kind of expect people up, you know, <laughs> cheering and all that kind of stuff, and and it's only toward the end that uh, he kind of arouses them some, and and you begin to realize that a lot of what we attribute to King's oratory comes from the fact that when he was talking about civil rights issues, it had a certain amount of Emotional resonance with people when he's talking about poverty, you know, uh, it's it's still it's still an issue. You know, you how many times have you heard politicians in the 21st century focus on the issue of poverty? You know, of all the political debates in the 2016 campaign, mm. not one of them dealt with the issue of poverty. Yeah. And and I think part of it is that kind of resignation. Because uh, Johnson had a
0: war on poverty,
1: didn't he, of some sort? Yeah, 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 yeah. Didn't we try that once? It, <laughs> you know, the way I look at it, you know, the war on poverty was kind of a skirmish against poverty, and uh, we surrendered. <laughs> you know? yeah. Just this is too difficult a, a, a problem. And yet he really had this idea that, mm. you know, this is a problem that not only could be overcome, yeah. but should be overcome yeah. on a global scale. Mm. And, uh, you know, clearly he was he was mistaken there that that uh, the world was not ready for that. You know, that if anything, since that time, the distribution of wealth has become more extreme. And uh, so it's it's not an issue that has that capacity to arouse people the way racial discrimination did. And poverty kind of like slavery was once, um, haven't we always had that? Doesn't every society have its slaves? And, you know, to go from that situation, say, in the mid 18th century, where one of the definitions of civilization, do you have slaves? (laughs) Yes, you
0: do. Then you must be a civilized society. And did King sacrifice some political capital by taking the issue of poverty so of course,
1: of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. His popularity declined to its lowest point mm-hmm. and, um, since when he became a popular leader in the, in the 50s. He was getting very strong criticisms from other civil rights leaders. Uh, you know, where are you going with this? Even within his org- own organization, many of them mm-hmm. thought that he um, was just leading toward failure. I mean, to kind of understand how audacious his idea was, of the Poor People's Campaign is. To put it in today's terms, imagine the Occupy movement of yes. the, you know, 10 years ago. And they took over, you know, some parks someplace. <laughs> and, you know, I remember in Oakland, they took over the area in front of City Hall and and occupied it for a while to draw attention to the, the issue of the 99% who were, you know, the 1%. Well, he was trying to stage an Occupy movement And the space was the National Mall. And the extent of it was, we'll stay here (laughs) until something happens with the issue of poverty. Even today, that would be seen as completely audacious and completely unrealistic. Mm. What do you mean occupy the National Mall? You're not going to be allowed to do that. And it's not going to be successful. And yet, that was his last act as a living human being, as trying to make that, successful well we know now looking back he wasn't going to be successful 50 years later we're still trying to answer that question he posed where do we go from here
0: yeah that feeds into the idea that king is so much more than just a civil rights activist he's as you say a social gospel minister and civil rights is just one part of his, his 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 broad canvas
1: yeah i i think that uh if I get asked this question a lot about you know, what would King think if he were still alive today you know, as a 90-year-old. and I think he would be very pleased that some things that he fought for you know, were brought about even mm-hmm. as he would be disappointed that, gosh, you know, I'm here to give a speech at Stanford and I still have to step over some poor people who are homeless. You know, yeah. and And we don't have an agenda within the richest nation in the world. To eliminate poverty, but he was calling for a global war against poverty. And that's nowhere on the horizon. Yeah. So if he were 90 years old coming back, he he would definitely not be recognized with a national holiday. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I'm not even sure he, very many churches would invite him to, to come and speak.
0: That raises the question as to whether progressive society has gone backwards.
1: We always think in terms of the um, back and forth of mm. social justice movements that, you know, he talked about the moral arc of the universe is mm. long, but it bends toward justice. And the thing I think about is that, yeah, and all of us will be dead by then. <laughs> um, you know, that's the cynical approach. But the, but the other thing is, but we do achieve signal victories, that suggests that, yeah, you go back and forth and there's ups and downs in terms of these movements, but when I go into a classroom, I have to explain what colonialism was. Mm -hmm. I have to explain what Jim Crow system was. I have to explain what apartheid is. So, yes, we can go up and down and back and forth in terms of whether we're moving toward a better world, and I think he would be the first to to remind us that um, we've got a lot of work to, to be done. Mm-hmm. We, look, we look at Trump and we, we have to say, you know, look, this is not where the United States was supposed to go, you know, from the Declaration of Independence yeah. to Donald Trump. Yeah. And that, um, that maybe we've got 80 years <laughs> to go and I won't be around for, for all of it, but uh, some of my students might be. <laughs> And, and I, I would hope that they would, they would say, you know, look, mm. this American experiment is not over. Yeah. It's still an experiment. Mm-hmm. It still might fail. It still might have ups, um, forward movement and backward movement. Yeah. But over the long haul, have
0: optimism that, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get better. Yeah. I wonder if you could finish, Clay, by returning to Washington. You were there, as you mentioned earlier, in 1963 for I Have a Dream. And then 48 years later, you helped design the King Memorial. Tell me what you thought was most important that the memorial should convey.
1: Well, first of all, just think of that amazing, you know, here I am, 19-year-old at the March on Washington, and then 30-some years later, I'm going back there to design a memorial that is on that same spot you know where I could I could walk where I had walked as a as a teenager and and help design a memorial mm. for the person I had kind of admired upon up on the up on the stage and uh, you know it was it was a great experience of seeing something realized that was literally inconceivable when I was that teenager. And to actually be involved in it, and to uh, and to be working <laughs> working with the widow of the guy, <laughs> and and also I think just in recent times, I mean I, I probably know of all the living, pe- people who are still living who are up on that platform, hmm. over the last 50 years, I've probably gotten to know a good proportion of them, and uh, you know that's something yeah you know, cuz i was a, i was a nobody i was i was this kid from new mexico who didn't even know uh, where the capitol was that's yeah, <laughs> yes, right i i had no idea where anything was in in washington and uh, since that time i've had so many privileged experiences mm-hmm. of, of you know going to the inauguration of obama yeah. and having that that sense of yeah i've been here before i was mm-hmm. a, you. yeah know, I couldn't even vote then. <laughs> and, and here I am now, black president. Mm. Now, yeah. you know, all, all of those things are, are just, they're constant reminders of why I feel privileged to be alive mm. and, and to have had the life I've had.
0: And what do you think of the way King comes across in the memorial? How does it fit with your great man?
1: Oh well, you know, uh, I, I okay. think I think you read the chapter in my yeah. in my memoir in which I talked about the experience of what happened to our design <laughs> after it went through the the ringer of Washington and fundraising and, and so many different uh, people with different agendas. Uh, uh, yes, uh, so many different hands in there. Who I I wish that my initial, you know, that that memorial was designed. And um, restaurant right out at the train station. There's a there, there. there's a restaurant right <laughs> right near there, and and I remember the uh, I was working with uh, Roma Design in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and and we had lunch there and and just kind of almost on a napkin, you know, yeah. just kind of over conversation. Yeah, we took uh, that that metaphor from the I Have a Dream speech about uh, out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. And, you know, we kind of, you know, we, we worked out the entire design probably in a few hours of, over lunch. And in essence, that's what's there. But what we had imagined as, you know, kind of carving into that stone an image of, of King Suddenly becomes a statue of, you know, kind of a monumental statue. I thought of the idea that he should be facing the Jefferson Memorial, because in, in sort of dialogue in dialogue. Yeah, yeah. That uh, taking the the passage from his his speech about when the architects of the republic and um, this republic wrote the great words of the Declaration of Independence, and he's saying we need to realize these these ideals. And I thought, gosh, he, could, he should be staring at Jefferson. And Jefferson's staring back in this kind of perpetual dialogue mm-hmm. about the meaning of American democracy. And instead, when you go there, he's staring at Reagan Airport. I mean, he's, you know, he, he's, he's staring off into the distance, and it doesn't make any sense. And and I tell some of the reasons why that those changes were made. And mm-hmm. so you, you have that kind of sense of... Irony and and uh, you know the what wasn't accomplished, but yet every time I go there and I see people from all over the world standing and and you know they they're not concerned about you know well this is too monumental because they don't know they they don't know what it could have might have been as a memorial and the simple fact that it's there you know I try every time I'm in Washington to at least drop by. Hmm and pay my respects, and um, be thankful that it is there.
0: Well, Clay, thanks so much for sharing your experiences and all that academic knowledge you've built up over the years. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stanford and the 20th Century. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. Join me next time when I'll be hearing about the tireless human rights activist, Eunice Kennedy Shriver the founder of the Special Olympics thanks for listening